put it, honor, truly an honor it has been. To open the word of God with you for so many years. We don't have time for this. No, stop. (laughs) Far too many preachers and teachers, however, and far too many bloggers and authors fear that teaching what is clear in the Bible will alienate, disgust, and scare people away. (laughs) And they're right. But the same consideration was there for Jesus as well, and Jesus never deviated. But when success throughout Christendom is to a great degree judged on the size of one's church, the last thing anyone wants to do is to scare people away. And so at the end of the day, the result is that the only part of the story, of his story, is really told, and the effect of this is to produce a very tepid faith for those who are in the game for what they can score from their local church. And when they have scored what they perceive is all a church has to offer them, they bail out, they meander around in the wilderness for a time and visiting various churches here and there. And then unfortunately, far too often, they bail on their church, try out a few other churches, and then they decide they're going to stay at home and worship at home. And do maybe a Bible reading on Sunday morning. And maybe have Alexa put on some music. Or maybe run a podcast of one of America's premier preachers. And it's becoming more and more rampant in this prosperous nation. Now here's a million dollar question. Why is it that some people will walk true stories over the years that we have heard, some of you have heard and hear from our missionaries in South America and from Chris Nanakin. Why is it that some people will walk for four hours through snow and or mud and biting wind chills to get to their church, as many do in Nepal, and then face the same thing going back home? Or they risk their lives or their livelihoods or their loved ones' lives or their freedom. And yet they don't even consider shrinking back from following the Jesus they know, even facing such dire opposition. While some who may have even been part of the church for several months or even years, maybe they got their feelings hurt or they don't like some decisions that were made. And again, they readily walk away from their church family sometimes without so much as a shrug. Could it be that their appreciation of their salvation, when it gets right down to it, is only token, and it's fleeting because the reality of what I'll call the long game, meaning eternal separation from God, is barely even an antiquated theory anymore, and increasingly is a non-issue altogether. Sadly for many in the church in the world today, 
The need for salvation is little more than an antiquated but traditional ornament akin to clutching a fire insurance policy in the very unlikely event that they'll ever need it. But the Bible teaches the spirit of man is eternal, which means everyone in here this morning, everyone in here is going to live eternally. They are going to live forever and ever, guaranteed. But the balance to that biblical truth is that not everyone will want to, once they wake up after the grave, to the reality that they are in constant torment in a horrid place called hell. The good news, the great news, the news of all the ages of mankind this morning is that because of the resurrection, it doesn't have to be. The Bible teaches, hear this well, the Bible teaches that God does not send anyone to hell. What the Bible does teach is that people choose to go there when they choose to reject the revealing of the one and only way God provided for salvation. And Jesus is very clear in John 14, 6. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. The Bible also teaches that some will live forever in a place called heaven, which has been specially prepared for all who have truly believed in Jesus in this life. In John 14, we read Jesus speaking, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. What is heaven? (laughs) There are so many warped and worldly notions of what it is. Golfers, I got news for you. Okay? It's not going to be Pebble Beach or TPC Sawgrass. Your swing isn't going to be perfect. In fact, I doubt that there's going to be golf at all. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Yeah, I know. Instead, you're going to have to settle for the effulgence of God's glory face to face. And you will fall. We will all fall in worship before him. This morning is just a rehearsal. And a pretty good one at that. What is heaven? Well, honestly, there in the, in the in the grand scheme of all the things in the Bible, there's relatively little about it. What we know is important and certain and sure, but what it actually is like, eh. but know this. Heaven is a place where there is no influence of evil. There is no struggle with temptation. Selfishness and self-absorption will be non-existent, and the only one that will matter is God Almighty, who will not be merely a creation of one's imagination or a theory on the pages of a book, but His presence will be physical and His glorious presence, for which we have nothing to compare it to, will provide the illumination for the new heavens and the new earth. And there will no longer be any night 
and they will not have need of the light of a lamp nor the light of the sun because the Lord God will illumine them and they will reign forever and ever, Revelation 22. For those in heaven, there will be no remorse. There will be no regrets. There will be no sorrow, no sense of loss, no influence of Satan at all for he will be absent there and we will revel in the majesty of God Most High. And again from Revelation, once we are there, he will wipe away every tear from our eyes, and there will no longer be any death, and there will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. That's the good news for those who die in faith in the resurrected Savior. The bad news is that many more, Many more will live forever in a place where there is no effect, no influence, no mitigation of evil, no comfort. There will be no friendship, no affection, because there is no influence of God there at all, for he will be absent there. Speaking of that day of reckoning in Matthew 25 Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. These will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Unlike heaven, there will be no end to regrets. And while I don't have a verse to support this next assertion per se, I have long wondered if the greatest torment of hell won't be a constant awareness of the innumerable times throughout one's life in which the Lord desperately tried to get their attention in all kinds of various ways and through all kinds of people, and yet they dismissed them out of hand. Think about it. The unbeliever is eternally separated from God because he or she chose not to believe. It doesn't have to be. Constant awareness of all the times, the opportunities that one had. The radio in the car is playing. The woman has it on scan. You know how that goes. It camps on the next station. It can pick up and it sits there for, I don't know, five to ten seconds. And as it's doing that, on one of those pauses, there's a woman telling her story of how God awakened her and gave hope. The driver couldn't scan past it quickly enough. Another's doctor asked if he could pray with his patient, who he just diagnosed with COPD. Now, That's not a death sentence per se, but the doctor knew he would have a challenging future, and the doctor loved the Lord, and he just wanted his patient to be able to have real hope beyond the present. His patient just wanted a pill. Cousin Jack came home from the Middle East with an amazing tale of how he was certain that God had protected him miraculously in a firefight. Because he was supposed to be on the convoy, which took heavy casualties that day. But that morning, getting out of bed, he twisted his ankle and he had to remain in the rear for a few days. Uncle Fred's reply, sure was lucky. The husband's wife 
encouraged, well, he might say badgered him into going to church with her throughout their married life. But he couldn't be bothered for many reasons and for no reasons. He did go a couple of times to appease his wife, but his mind was on the great outdoors. The teen girl was invited to a church youth group by the cute guy in her biology class, and so she went. Of course, because he was cute. (laughs) But once she got there, she thought the whole thing was pretty lame, and that was that. Driving down a highway in Oklahoma, the billboard read, Jesus saves. That was it, just Jesus saves. And the driver quipped to herself, saves? Saves what? Coupons? Starbucks stars? Pennies? <laughs> the bulletin board at the school said Fellowship of Christian Athletes meets every Wednesday. A couple of kids just seemed drawn to it. Every time their eyes just happened to catch a glimpse of the poster, but never enough to act on it. Sitting at the red light, the car's bumper sticker ahead said, No Jesus, no peace. No Jesus, no peace. The driver behind muttered, Idiot, shaking his head as the light changed. It didn't have to be. It is appointed unto man to die once, the writer of Hebrews says in chapter 9, and after this comes judgment. Why is it that some people just seem never not to have had a relationship with the living God, while others came later in life through many struggles oftentimes and and just hard times in general, while still others were brought up in solid families with loving parents, they went to church as a family religiously, they came up through the church's children's ministries and youth group, and they went even on church mission trips only to bail on the faith once out from under the family's love and nurture. And then there's the others, though, who grew up in horrid circumstances with abusive parents or no parents or many parents. Some were subjected to unspeakable pain, sometimes for years. And yet, despite it all, grabbed on to the resurrected Savior the first time they really understood the gravity of what it all meant. Theologians have devised various theological packages to explain it, but at the end of the day, while helpful, they are all lacking. So what we're left with is the reliable, inscrutable counsel of God's inspired, infallible, and errant authoritative word. And in the wondrous wisdom of God and his mysterious sovereignty, we are told by Jesus with certainty in John three sixteen. No, it's not the football stadium verse. It's actually in the Bible. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him might not perish, but have life everlasting. And we are also told by Jesus himself that no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And I will raise him up. On the last day. And then the Apostle Paul, compelled by the Holy Spirit, proclaims in Romans chapter 10, All who call out to the Lord will be saved. How can people have faith in the Lord and ask Him to save them if they have never heard about Him? You wouldn't think that would be a problem in America. 
or in the West. And I'm not talking about the glib, syrupy, saccharine-filled, gloss-off presentation. I'm talking about the whole counsel of God's Word. How can they have faith and ask the Lord to save them if they have never heard about Him? And how can they hear unless someone tells them? And how can anyone tell them without being sent by the Lord? The Scriptures say it is a beautiful sight to see even the feet of someone coming to preach the good news. Then on top of all of this, I throw in one more obviously inspired text from the Apostle Peter answering the question of why the Lord seems to wait and wait and wait, at least from our vantage point, concerning his return as promised and wrapping all things up and ushering in the new heavens and the new earth. Peter writes in Second Peter 3, the Lord isn't slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. Because once Jesus comes back, time is up. So we hold these things in this this tension, knowing that God's ways are not our ways, which he tells us in Isaiah 55. And so we take the Bible on balance, allowing the whole counsel of God's word to interpret itself. And let's be honest, we do have to admit there are still mysteries in the way even real faith comes to be and manifests itself. Like Rob and Julie Bowers, not a real family, if you're going, they're a a compilation, a composite, if you will, of middle-class professional urban dwellers with 1.3 children, I always wondered what that .3 child looked like. And an adequate income who were fairly faithful churchgoers, but they grew tired of the predictability of their Sunday morning worship experience, and so trying a couple other churches in the area, decided they would just, again, stay home and do church themselves. Rob and Julie whose names could very appropriately be Nadab and Abihu, which we read about in Leviticus 10, are a growing class of Christians, quote-unquote, in America, not unlike Nadab and Abihu, who were spiritual. They just did their worship their own way rather than God's way. And if you're familiar with that story, you know how that ended. Nadab and Abihu forfeited their lives at the hand of God for bringing the offerings and worship the way they determined it should be done. Are the world's Rob and Julie's faith real? There's only one who knows that for sure, and that's the Lord Almighty. But as Jesus says, they will be known by their fruit. As I said, plenty of things remain mysterious, like the faith of the persecuted Christians around the world. Like Karun, who was beaten by Hindu extremists as they attacked a group of Christians. This comes from the Voice of the Martyrs, I commit to pray.com, just a couple of days ago. 
They were praying, beating them with rods, breaking chairs, and destroying Bibles and songbooks, parading them down the street to a Hindu temple for a forced reconversion ceremony. By the time police arrived hours later, Karun, who is an evangelist, had been beaten so severely with an iron rod that he had suffered fractures to his legs, hands, and body. Several months later, surgeons were forced to amputate one of his legs because it was not healing properly. A witness told VOM, Karun was just a person walking around, sharing the gospel, organizing and gathering people for prayer, and working for his family, but now is sitting helpless. And yet... He is still hoping for a greater reward from the Lord. Nepal is a tough and difficult place. This past January, five people died within a week in a small Nepalese village. And the only Christian family in the Hindu village was blamed for their deaths. Jiam Prakash and his family were asked to leave the village because they were following a foreign god which is mind-boggling when you realize that Hinduism is made up of a very indiscriminate pantheism of thousands and thousands of gods. One night, six men came to Jim Prakash's home shouting and trying to break down the door when Jim Prakash asked them why they were disturbing his family. And one of the young men said, we know the death spirit is here and that's why five people are dead. Before leaving, they broke the home's water cistern. Jian Prakash and his family have temporarily moved to another city. But, (laughs) but they plan to return home to their village so that people might come to know the risen Savior. What is God's assessment of such believers I love the way the writer of Hebrews talks about it, of the persecuted Christians in chapter 11. These are men, he he writes, of whom the world is not worthy. (laughs) Why do millions of Christians around the globe face financial extremes, their homes destroyed, their families murdered, beaten, or imprisoned. And yet, in spite of it all, they refuse to give up on the bride of Christ called his church. While in other parts of the world where they have ease and everything they could want and more, abandon his church for any reason and for no reason imaginable. The very institution Jesus himself established as his body on earth once he returned to heaven. Could it be that to the masses that there is no real comprehension of what it is that they have been saved from? while others, perhaps because of their horrid station in life, have a much deeper appreciation of what the resurrection of Jesus really means. In Luke chapter 7, Jesus is at a banquet at the invitation of the Pharisees. And by custom of the day, beggars were allowed, if they could, to go and kind of see if they could kind of go and glean scraps from the tables. And a woman shows up, the text calls the woman... A sinner, which might seem strange since that could be said of anyone, even the high and mighty who sponsored the dinner, the Pharisees, with Jesus in attendance. But the inclusion of the phrase, 
is meant as an epithet, as a nasty term. And it is essentially defined for us through the heightening of the Pharisee who is annoyed with Jesus, remarking in verse 39 of Luke 7, that Jesus certainly wasn't a prophet, couldn't have been a prophet. Because if he were a real prophet, he would have known what kind of woman the begging sinner was. And we know that she was more than likely a prostitute. Oh, everyone's a sinner. I'm a sinner, but not that kind of sinner. And Jesus answers in Luke 7.40, Simon, I have something to say to you. Not Simon Peter, Simon the Pharisee. And he replied, say it, teacher. A money lender, says Jesus, had two debtors, one who owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they were unable to repay, he graciously forgave them both. So which of them will love him more? Simon answered and said, I suppose the one whom he forgave more. And he said to him, you've judged correctly. Turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but she, since the time I came in, has not ceased to kiss, ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my, anoint my head with oil, but she anointed my feet with perfume. For this reason I say to you, her sins, which are many, have been forgiven, for she loved much, but he who is forgiven little loves little. And the fact that anyone even thinks that they have been forgiven a little really doesn't understand the holiness of God and the depths of one's sin. The person who understands what a wretch they are before a holy, sin-hating God and thankful for the love of such a God far surpasses the arrogant narcissist who thinks, yeah, again, of course I'm not perfect. Nobody's perfect. But I'm sure not a sinner like that. The Bible tells us, yes, we are. Yeah, we are. We are like that because the standard is not the beggar or the Pharisee or the spouse, or the neighbor, or the abuser, or the murderer. The standard is God Almighty. The difference that separates the multitudes in their eternal destination, heaven or hell, is a life-altering thankfulness for God's mercies towards them in Christ. And that apart from God's accomplished remedy for their sin, they would have a place waiting for them in hell for all eternity. But it doesn't have to be. Jesus warns sternly and soberly in Matthew 7, Enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide. Remember who the gate is we learned last week? John chapter 10, or the week before, Jesus is God. I am, I am, ego me. I am the gate. Enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction. And there are many who enter through it, hence my comments at the outset, that there will be many more, not in heaven, than in heaven. 
For the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life and there are few who find it. And the very next words out of Jesus' mouth are these. Beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing but inwardly are ravenous wolves. If you know your Bible, you know that Jesus is referring to everyone throughout the history of man who has not, does not, and will not proclaim the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth of the Bible, substituting their own truth version where it's convenient. And the prevailing lie, which is growing like kudzu, is that all roads lead to heaven, that all faiths are equally valid and beliefs are true to those who believe them. If you never lived in the South and you haven't seen kudzu, it's a vine that can grow six inches a day. Jesus warns quite to the contrary of the road, all roads lead to heaven. Yes, everyone, everyone will live eternally, but for many, according to Jesus, it will be eternal hell away from the presence of the Lord, and for a relative few, eternal heaven in his presence. Second Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 8. When the Lord returns, he will be dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. These will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. It doesn't have to be. His winnowing fork, Matthew 3, is in his hand, and he will thoroughly clear his threshing floor, and he will gather his wheat, those are believers, into the barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. But it doesn't have to be. And so just as the weeds are gathered up and burned with fire, so shall it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send forth his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all stumbling blocks and those who commit lawlessness and will throw them into the furnace of fire. And in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. But thanks be to God, it doesn't have to be. And to the multitude of pseudo-Christians who are playing some kind of a game with God as opposers, claiming to be his and yet living anything like it. We are told in Hebrews chapter 10, for if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of fire which will consume the adversaries. Again, those are not my capitals. They are capitalized in the text, meaning they are quoted from the Old Testament. Isaiah 26, if you're interested. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much severer punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has insulted the Spirit of grace? Is there any ambiguity in here? 
For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. But it doesn't have to be. Satan rules this world. He does for now in a limited way because God has turned it over to him. This is why the world applauds and cheers anything and everything that is offensive to God Almighty. Let that hit home and explain why our culture is the way it is and values the way it is and no longer even believes black and white. And I mean literally that black is black and white is white. Not if black doesn't feel like it or white doesn't feel like it. It can be red or blue or green. And the world pats itself on the back for being so open-minded and tolerant and accepting and affirming. As the serpent slithers away. And this is why Christians are increasingly criticized and will be and disparaged and persecuted But the great and terrible day of the Lord, as it is called in Scripture, is coming. He is coming to set all things aright. When Jesus was executed at Calvary, he was assuming the guilt which you, everybody in here, and me own. There's no denying it. When Jesus rose from the grave, it was the singular proof that Jesus is in fact God, for only God is sinless. Which is why Paul declares, but if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith also is in vain. Christian, if there is no resurrection, then we are the biggest fools on earth. Moreover, we are even found to be false witnesses of God because we have testified against God that he has raised Christ, whom he did not raise if in fact the dead are not raised. And if the dead are not raised, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith, Christians, is worthless. Why? Because we are still in our sins then. And those who have fallen asleep in Christ have all perished. If we have hoped in Christ in this life only, We are of all men most to be pitied. But now Christ has been raised from the dead for the first fruits of those who are asleep. Oswald Chambers, the late Oswald Chambers, puts it like this. The center of salvation is the cross of Jesus. And the reason it is so easy to obtain salvation is because it cost God so much. The cross is the point where God and sinful man merge with a crash. And the way to life is opened. But the crash is on the heart of God.
Another man wrote, My iniquity, my sin, my stuff is all I ever brought to the table in this deal. I was utterly helpless before the Lord, powerless to escape sin, powerless to escape death, powerless to resist the snake that was coiled around my heart. But Jesus turns up on the scene and everything changes. Where are you this morning? Where are you, each and every single one of you, this morning? Do you sit here this morning knowing, I mean knowing, knowing against everything that you could not be dissuaded that were you to die moments from now, that your eternity in the presence of God Almighty is sealed already for all eternity because you are no longer judged on the basis of of your efforts and your attempts to make up for all your shortcomings and all your sins because Jesus Christ, ego a me, the I am, I am, God Almighty in the flesh came and lived perfectly to his own demands of righteousness and said, I give it to you because nothing else will get you into heaven. And all you have to do is say, Yes, yes, I get it. It's easy because of what it cost God. The two merge and the gate is opened, but the crash was on the heart of God. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Eli, Eli, Lama Sabachthani. in some strange way that is unfathomable to my mind. God the Son, fully God, experienced separation from the rest of the Trinity because that is what death requires. Physical death, that's minor. Doesn't seem like it's minor when we're here now. But let's face it. Even the strongest among us is only going to live, what, 80 years? If you're really strong, 90. If you're crazy, 100 plus. Yeah. But then eternity starts. No end. Forever and ever and ever and ever and ever and ever. You can't fathom it. And you will spend it. You will live eternally, either in hell or in the place prepared for you by God himself. The invitation is there to you this morning. There are two sheets out in the entryway, one on the little round pedestal's table, at least it better be, and the big cabinet that's right against the very back wall where we have brochures and stuff about the church. There's another same sign-up sheet. If you, this morning, are accepting that you are under the, the conviction of the Holy Spirit, which is what it takes, and you need Jesus, and you are willing now to begin a life of faith with him, I'm asking you to sign one of those two sheets. Or if that's, if that, for whatever reason, if it's just easier, take out a card if it's not been used already in front of you and write your name and your contact information on there. But write, I received Christ today and put it in the offering box. Because all we want to do is know who you are. We will get in touch with you one time. 
and ask you, how can we help? And now give you suggestions for how you take the next step afterwards. That's all. If Pastor Ben contacts you and he asks for your social security number, don't give it to him. Okay? All right. Let me have you stand. Father in heaven, the maker of all that is seen and unseen, you know the hearts of every individual in here. You have made them. You have known this day for them and whatever their eternity is. You already know all of that. And I pray by the moving and power of your Holy Spirit, Father, you would not let a single person leave this building today without the absolute undying certainty that when they take their last breath, they will be with you and all the believing saints throughout history to worship you in a new heaven and a new earth. Dear God, move, I pray now, for the glory of our risen Savior, our triune God, we praise you, giving thanks in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. He has risen.